Let's, let's open in prayer. Father, I do thank you for uh, your word, for your spirit. I just ask that you'd uh, let that be the voice that speaks tonight and not me. Let this be something that's uh, an encouragement to, to your people. I know it's a little bit different what you've laid on my heart, uh, but I, I just pray that it will speak to, to, to everyone here in, a, in individual ways and maybe someone to a very specific way. I just thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to, to share your word and, and let it do what it's intended to do uh, this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm going to begin by reading the scripture, and then I'll introduce what my topic is. So um, if you'd like to stand for the reading of the word, let's see. Oh, okay, there we are. Good. <laughs> this is what we'll be reading from, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 23. And then Romans chapter 2, 11 through 16. Romans chapter 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and unrighteousness ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, because, but because but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In Romans 2, 11 through 16. For there is no partiality with God, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things of the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing and else, or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel." Okay, you, you may be seated. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we see here Paul presenting the general basis for God's judgment of sin upon mankind. His glory and power are revealed in creation. His law is revealed in man's conscience. Paul also states that the solution to man's sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This speaks of the ways in which God has revealed himself to man in two theological categories, general revelation and special revelation. Let's see. Most sermons are about the old covenant law the rev that reveals sin, or the new covenant of grace, the redemption of sin. Those fall into the category of special revelation, as, as you can see in the excerpts from those particular scriptures. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about the other category, general revelation. Yeah, move on to that. <laughs> Now, most of us are familiar with verses like these about general revelation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Psalms 8.3 and 4, 
Psalm 8, 3 and 4. <laughs> when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that, you'll that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? Isaiah 45, 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God? Who formed the earth and who is God and who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited? He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Psalm 147, verse 4. He counts the number of the stars, he calls them all by name. Nehemiah 9, 6. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them and preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. Job 9, verse 7 and 8. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So the Lord has made it clear that although the creation, his creation revealed him, he, it's also not to be worshipped in his place. Here's some verses about that. Jeremiah 10, 10 through 12. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble, and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens at his discretion. And then Jeremiah 51, verses 15 to 17. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heaven by his understanding. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of water in the heavens. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by the carved image for his molded image is falsehood and there's no breath in them. He also reminds those who have the special revelation, those to whom he has revealed himself, that general revelation is for all. Deuteronomy 4.19. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all peoples under the earth as a heritage. And then, of course, the one that we are most familiar with in terms of general revelation, Matthew 5, 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do, not good, do, good, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise. Uh, he makes, I'm sorry, I lost track of my place. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is general release. This also may be for, referred to as common grace as compared to saving grace. That, that's another sermon. Uh, sometimes God may do things that involve special revelation, but they also will be a general revelation to those not directly involved. There's a few examples of those in Scripture. Uh, for example, uh, Joshua uh, 10, 12 through 13. <laughs> then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Agilon. <laughs> so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is, is this not written in the back book of Jasher? 
So the sun stood still till in the midst of the heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Now think about that. Also Isaiah 38 uh, verses 4 through 8, and the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, go, to, go and tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, surely I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. And this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. <laughs> I think this is probably the introduction, introduction of daylight savings time. Uh, <laughs> Not really, but most certainly when the sun was delayed, Joshua or Hezekiah weren't the only ones that noticed. That was certainly a general revelation. That was something that those that didn't know God said, what, what, what happened? And they probably <laughs> pursued wanting to find out. Now, we also have a New Testament example, um, Luke 8, 22 through 25. Now, it happened on a certain day that he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filled with, filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him saying, master, master, we're, ch we're perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. And, and they ceased and there was calm. But he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying one to another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, of course, this is a, in some sense, is a special revelation to those that are in the boat. But I would think in the vicinity of, that, uh, of the lake that day, <laughs> everybody noticed something unusual about the wind and the water. <laughs> they were asking the same thing. What? What, what happened? <laughs> Okay, and going on, here's, here's another example where it's clearly stated how the special revelation events affected the general revelation of observers. In other words, something specific happened that's part of the special revelation of salvation, but there were those around that were observing it that were affected and brought closer to the special revelation. Uh, Luke 23, 44 through 48 now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd came together to that site, seeing what had been done, they beat their breasts and returned home. So there again, I think it was general revelation in terms of the events going on around them. Certainly it was the special revelation being prepared for us, the crucifixion, death, and ultimately the resurrection of Christ. Here's, a, here's an example of general revelation that led to a special revelation. And it's one that we hear commonly every year and probably don't think of it in this way. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And this again, the revelation of God in the heavens. They happen to know as uh, they had learned uh, 
concerning star is that there was something to indicate to them that there was a, a, a king being born, but to others it was just stars in heaven. <laughs> and uh, going on from there, Paul used general revelation in a specific way to, to bring special revelation to the people of Athens in Acts 17, uh, verses 23 to 25. Then Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. They had had a general revelation, and here Paul brings them from there to the, to the special revelation. Now, now I would like to talk a little about some samples, examples outside the Bible in recent history about how general revelation was used to lead pagans to special revelation. Before I do that, I'm going to stop and take a sip of water. <laughs> okay. Uh, a few years ago, I met a missionary named Don Richardson at a large missions convention in the Portland area. <laughs> he was the keynote speaker, but the Lewis County Church I was attending at the time invited him to speak on the following Sunday and then meet with the missions board of which I was a part at the time. <laughs> Don Richardson has written a number of books on experiences that he and other missionaries had had in the field where they were having difficulty presenting the gospel to pagan tribes. Okay, wake up. There it is. Okay. <laughs> One of the books he, he wrote is it Eternity in Their Hearts. In that book, he presents stories that relate how over time he discovered, as did others, that God had given pagans some understanding of the true God but they didn't really know who he was or how to serve or be reconciled to him. As with those in Athens, they would often have a vague knowledge of, the, of an invisible God of heaven who was independent of creation and of all the idol gods that they worshipped. In some cases, that creator God had been replaced by other lesser gods because they didn't know how to relate to or to worship him or how to atone for whatever sins they had committed against him. Notice here that they had a concept of sin but they didn't know what to do about it other than to attempt to appease individual gods that somehow might be associated with some sin or failure. As Micah Rose taught last week, we all encounter various dis distresses and sometimes calamities in our lives, whether we're believers or unbelievers. To those pagans, there was a god for almost every kind of problem, and they had to be appeased by all kinds of sacrifices, but they didn't know how or what to, to sacrifice to a god they could not see. So mostly, simply, most simply stopped trying and dealt with the gods they felt they could appease. Oddly enough, many of these tribes had traditions that could be used to explain the gospel, but sometimes it took a while to see what could be used to reach them. Don Richardson called these redemptive analogies. Uh, a simple Bible example of a, a redemptive analogy is uh, John 1.29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Obviously, Jesus was not a lamb, but the Jews standing there awaiting baptism understood exactly what he meant. They thought immediately of sacrificial lambs of the temple, and some probably thought back to Genesis 22, 7 and 8, but Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, 
here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself a lamb for burnt offering. And the two of them went on together. So here's what he would call in a redemptive analogy, something that is an analogy for them of what Christ became for us, the sacrificial lamb. Another of John, in another of Don Richardson's books titled Peace Child, he gives an extended example of a redemptive analogy. He summarized, he summarized that experience in the beginning of the, a chapter titled Peoples with Strange Customs in the, in the book Eternity in Their Hearts, the one that I previously mentioned. Rather than trying to paraphrase his longer story, I'll just read the summary in Eternity in Their Hearts. This is fascinating. In 1962, my wife Carol and I, taking our eight-month-old son, Stephen, traveled to New Guinea and lived as missionaries among the Sawi, one of, the, one of a nearly a thousand tribes living in New Guinea's 1,500, miles, 1500 square mile semi-continent. The Sawi proved to be one of five or six tribes on this planet who practice both cannibalism and headhunting. Later, three other children, Shannon, Paul, and Valerie, were also born to us and spent their early years with us among the Sawi. <laughs> Our earliest attempts to communicate the gospel to the Sawi were frustrated by their admiration of masters of treachery, clever deceivers who could sustain a deception of friendship over a period of months while steadily fattening their victims with their friendship for an uns unsuspected day of slaughter. This is actually how they would do things. Because of these unusual this unusual kind of hero worship, the Sawi, listening to my early attempts to explain the gospel, mistook Judas Iscariot, Jesus' betrayer, for the hero of the story. Jesus, in Sawi eyes, was simply the dupu to be laughed at. How, how is he going to present the gospel to this kind of people? Suddenly, Carol and I found ourselves grappling with two weighty problems. First, how could we make the real meaning of the gospel clear to people whose value system seemed so opposite to the New Testament ethic? Secondly, how could we be sure the Sawi were not fattening us with their friendship from an for an unexpected slaughter? <laughs> Praying for a special help from God, we eventually found that the Sawi had a unique way of making peace and forestalling outbreaks of treachery. If a Sawi father offered his son to another group as a peace child, not only were the past grievances, grievances thereby settled, but also free, future instances of treachery were present, prevented, but only as long the, as the peace child remained alive. Our ready-made key of communication then was the presentation of Jesus Christ to the Sawi as the ultimate peace child. Using Isaiah 9.6, John 3.16, Romans 5.10, Hebrews 7.25. I actually should have looked those up, but that's the references he gives. Uh, as the primary scriptural correspondence of the peace child analogy. By this means, the meaning of the gospel did break through among the Sawi once they realized, once they realized that the, the one Judas betrayed was a peace child, they no longer viewed Judas as a hero. <laughs> For to betray a peace child was to the Sawi the worst possible crime. So that was, again, using a general uh, general revelation. This was something that the, these people were familiar with, and the missionary was able to use that as an opportunity to take that general revelation to, to lead them to the special revelation of salvation in Christ. Let's see, where did I leave off? Okay. Uh, before I go on, 
I just wanted to mention that both of Don Richardson's books are available to check out of our church library <laughs> here in Classroom 9, uh, that's mentioned before. The library is open on Sunday mornings, uh, 10, 10 to 11.30 a.m. I was going to, I, I'll, I'll just say this, I told my wife, I, I was going to say, and now a word from our sponsor, but... <laughs> Not really. We don't have a sponsor here. This is, to those that are watching this on video, we're not. Uh, we don't ask for anything here. We're just presenting the gospel. Okay. Now, resuming the missionary experiences, in a significant number of other cases, there were groups that worshipped one supreme God, never represented by an idol, but but through oral oral traditions, they were awaiting a messenger that would bring them the book of God's words. This was strange. They would encounter multiple tribes that had this tradition. They knew that there was only one God, the God of heaven, the, uh, the supreme God, however they would label him, but they had in their tradition that they were waiting for someone that was supposed to bring them the book of God's words. In one tribe, it was strange that they were waiting for this because they had no written language. How could they be waiting on someone to bring the book of God's words in their language when they didn't even have a written language? It was part of their tradition. Uh, now, the other thing, this is important to apologetics, because evolutionists claim that as man evolved, he proceeded from polytheism, that's the worship of many gods, to monotheism, the worship of one god. These tribes never had a history of polytheism, just a desire to learn more about God. So it, it, it blows that uh, theory of the evolutionists out of the water. But uh, they went from polytheism to monotheism? Nope. They never had polytheism. Now, here's a couple. There are a couple of, of examples in the Old Testament also confirm monotheism before God's special, special revelation to Abraham. Um, Job one uh, verses one and five. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. Verse five. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them, a number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job did regularly. Now Job was a predecessor of Abraham. The book of Job is actually the first book of the Old Testament, both in terms of events in it and when it was recorded. So this is prior to Abraham. Not, not prior to the law, but prior to Abraham. You have this one that is worshiping God. God had obviously revealed himself. Another example from the Old Testament is, is also used as a redemptive analogy in the New Testament, but it also confirms monotheism before Abraham. Uh, Genesis 14, 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed, be, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him tithe of all. And then the New Testament uses this as a redemptive analogy. Hebrews 5, 5 and 6, 9 and 10. So, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son. He, that is God, who said to him, Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Hebrews 7, 26 through 28, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests, that is the priests of the, the Jewish temple, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, that is the oath that God gave to his son, the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who, he has, who has been perfected forever. And then Hebrews 8, 1, through, 1 and 2 and verse 6. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. Paul's, <laughs> Paul presumably or whoever wrote Hebrews is pointing out, this is the, what, I'm, what the purpose of this example is. The moim of what we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord had erected, and not man. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch he is also a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. So again, here was an example of some one that he's actually using the example of Melchizedek to point out the ministry of Christ. Now, another challenge for missionaries in a variety is the variety of languages of the people groups that they encounter. We know from the scriptures why they have different languages. Genesis 11, 6 and 7, the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they have begun to do. Now, nothing they propose to do will be withheld from withheld from them. This, of course, was the, they were building the Tower of Babel. So he says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. An unusual area in which God revealed himself in general revelation was in the development of the symbols used in the Chinese language. Uh, I first encountered information about that in a book called, titled The Discovery of Genesis with a subtitle of How the Truths of Genesis Were Found Hidden in the Chinese Language. Uh, by C.H. Kang and Ethel R. Nelson. That's just the reference here. I've misplaced my copy of the book. I did have this book at one time. But Don Richardson refers to some content of that book in, in, a in the same chapter, The Peoples with Strange Customs, and the book Eternity in Their Hearts. Again, I'll just read the brief, brief excerpt that explains the significance of that discovery. This is in a subsection in, in his book called The Chinese and Their Writing System. Early missionaries to China faced a formidable obstacle. They had to learn the Chinese writing system. As Westerners, accustomed to writing with European alphabets of approximately 26 letters, it says approximately because, of course, other European languages may have a different number of letters, but they're still around 26. They, they, they uh, again, uh, as Westerners accustomed to writing with European alphabets of approximately 26 letters, they gasped. Chinese writing, they found, used a system based upon 214 symbols called radicals. They gasped again when they, were, they learned that those 214 radicals, enig enigmatic enough in themselves, combine to form 30,000 to 50,000 ideographs, the actual characters of the Chinese use. <laughs> It was enough to make even the most patient saint gripe. <laughs> Why on earth would the sovereign God permit any people to develop a writing system so radical? I mean, they're using the word radical in quotes because that's the term they use for the parts of the uh, Chinese characters. 
Didn't it matter to God that Chinese writing placed an almost impossible barrier in the way of communicating the gospel to one quarter of mankind? One day, however, one of the missionaries stopped complaining. He was studying a particular Chinese ideograph, the one which means righteous. He noticed that it contained an upper and lower part. The upper part was simply the Chinese symbol for a lamb. Directly under the lamb was a second symbol, the first-person pronoun, I. Suddenly he discerned an amazingly well-coded message hidden within the ideograph, I under the lamb am righteous. It was nothing less than the heart of the gospel that he had crossed the ocean to preach. Chinese were startled when he called their attention to the hidden message. They had never noticed it, but once he pointed it out, they saw it clearly. When he asked, which lamb must I be under to be righteous? They had no answer. With consummate delight, he told them of the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world, Revelation 13.8, and the same lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. He shared this discovery with fellow missionaries, and soon they turned to... they in turn began uncovering still other spiritual messages encoded within the 4,000-year-old ideographs. Chinese language suddenly became the most exciting adventure they had ever experienced. Another example, whoops, what happened? Lights went out here. This is important, I need this example. There it is, okay, yeah. Oh, I, oh, okay. Well, that's where I wanted to be advanced too, <laughs> okay. The radical, yeah, okay, another example, the Chinese symbol for a boat embodies a vessel with eight people inside it. Eight people? <laughs> Noah's Ark bore exactly eight people to safety. This, this happened to be the only one I could actually find to, to show you the example. The radical meaning man is a figure shaped like an upside-down Y. The ideograph meaning tree is a cross with a symbol for a man superimposed on it. And the symbol for come calls for two other small, smaller symbols for man to stand on either side of the tree with the greater man super, superimposed upon it. Some students of Chinese writing claim that the two smaller human figures collectively mean mankind. If so, the ideograph meaning come seems to carry a code that says, mankind come to the man on the tree. Interesting. <laughs> okay, let's see. So, my final observations will actually be my initial observations from Scripture that trigger this whole message. This is where I started when I was, the Lord just kind of was, uh, I was studying some, something one day and came across this. It was where I wanted to lead this message to, and then the rest of it sort of came afterwards. Uh, not only did God use the characters of a language to embed his revelation, but sometimes he uses specific words in some languages. Here I want, I want to take you to Paul, Paul's greeting in Romans 1.7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses the exact same phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, in his greetings to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Philemon. He modifies the start of the phrase to grace, mercy, and peace in First and, first and Second Timothy and Titus. Now that includes every one of his epistles. One observation here about the specific words, those specific words, the specific words is that grace was the common Greek greeting and peace was the common Hebrew greeting. Paul was intentionally using the Gentile and Jewish Christians together 
in every epistle he wrote, even when he was writing to an individual. But these forms of greeting existed in those languages before they were used in scriptures. How is that significant? First, I'll comment on the Hebrew greeting peace or shalom. We find in Hebrews 7, 1 and 2, going back to Hebrews, for this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, shalom, peace of the Most High God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed returning of the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all first being first being translated king of righteousness Melchizedek means king of righteousness and then also king of Salem meaning king of peace to the Jewish mind peace meant more than lack of war or even restful circumstances it meant blessings both natural and spiritual we see how Paul connects the cultural concept of, to the gospel, the cultural concept to the gospel by connecting God the Father, who was the, the Jews already knew and worshipped, with the Lord Jesus Christ, their promised Messiah, by saying, let's see, back to here. Um, where was it? Oh, I went to the previous page. <laughs> grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's connecting grace there, first of all. Now, let, now let's look at the Greek greeting, Greek, Greek greeting grace. This even was even more interesting to me. This also had some cultural concepts associated with it. It was used in reference to patronage in the positive sense. Our modern version is a grant from some source. In the times of Christ, there weren't commercial banks, so many lower-class citizens wanting to get funds to start a business would go to an upper-class person of wealth to obtain funds. This was a way to avoid the high usury of moneylenders. The arrangement for the granting of funds was considered grace, the giving of something that could never fully be repaid by the one receiving it. But there was an associated response expected from the recipient. He was expected to use the grant in the way in which it was intended and to not misrepresent or bring shame to the benefactor. That is, he was to respond in good faith and faithfulness to the grace that was given. Again, Paul's greeting makes it explicitly clear to the Christians that grace they received was from God the Father and implicitly expects that the appropriate response was faith and faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one last comment about revelation embedded in words. <laughs> this is just something I happen to have in mind. A French word that is used when someone is leaving is adieu. A means to, and dieu means God. You're commending them to God as they leave, kind of thing. Similarly, of course, Spanish, adios. Adios. Dios is God. Again, they're saying, commending you to you. Finally, our English word, goodbye, which comes from Old English, God be with ye, commending them to God. I explode, I, I'll close with Paul's uh, Trinitarian farewell. Now, farewell, of course, that word is self-explanatory, farewell. <laughs> that uh, so I'm going to close with Paul's Trinitarian farewell, Second uh, Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word and, and the ways in which you uh, reveal yourself both generally to us and then ultimately uh, specifically to our hearts and bring us to to know you personally. We thank you for um, the, ways, the ways in which you do that and, and the spirit by which you uh, draw us to you. I just ask that you'd uh, 
Let your spirit be upon each one here tonight as they depart, and let your uh, blessings be upon them. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.